This episode is brought to you by our friends at Unibuddy. Unibuddy is a student engagement platform that helps higher education recruitment, marketing, and admissions professionals attract, engage, and convert prospective students. Unibuddy helps students make one of the most important purchasing decisions of their entire life, and that decision is where to go to college. One of the ways they do this is by giving prospects real-time access to real people at your university. Here's how it works. A prospective student named Sam stumbles upon your school's business major website page, and he starts reading about your program offering. After a few seconds, a warm pop-up form invites Sam to chat with student ambassador Dan, who, you guessed it, is currently studying business at your university. After some quick niceties, Sam admits he's been looking at your school for some time now, but has yet to submit a formal inquiry or start an application. He's been to a couple of virtual recruitment events, but it's been hard to get a real feel for what life as a student, especially during these times, is actually like. Dan talks about his love of the entrepreneurship course he's taking, how challenging but rewarding Accounting 101 is, and how impressed he's been with your school's response to the challenges that COVID has thrown everyone's way. After 15 minutes of chatting with Dan, Sam books a chat with one of your admissions counselors for next week, and then he goes on to create an application account. This experience is so much more powerful than a static chat window or a scripted chatbot. Unibuddy empowers people to make better decisions through shared human experience. Oh, and by the way, this peer-to-peer engagement platform, it's just one of Unibuddy's product offerings. Wait until you see their virtual events platform. It's totally game-changing. Don't get stuck in a prospective student's college shopping cart. Make the experience of accessing personalized peer-to-peer feedback as frictionless as possible. To learn more about Unibuddy and access a plethora of free resources to help you navigate student recruitment this year, head on over to enrollify.org forward slash Unibuddy, and we'll ping you directly to Unibuddy's learning hub. Marketing is often looked at as the be-all and end-all of why a program succeeded or failed. And, and, you know, whether that's fair or not, the fact is that that's what happens. Amrit, welcome to the Enrollify podcast. I, I just, I'm just like thankful for your patience because we have tried <laughs> to schedule this interview, and I have had to reschedule like at least twice, maybe even three times. But, um, but you know the the powers that be did not win. We have overcome them, and here we are. And I'm really, I'm really pumped for our chat. How are you doing this morning? I'm well. I'm well, Zach. How are you? I'm good. I, uh, I was just telling for our listeners. I was just telling Amrit that. I'm like in our in my closet, like hiding because my apartment building decided to do some construction and renovations on the the ground floor, and I, I could literally like feel. I, I'm on the sixth floor, but I could feel the drilling happening like through the floorboards, and that was yesterday. So, anyways, so far so good. I haven't heard any drilling, so I think we're I think for, we're in for a treat. But if you do happen to hear a drill here or there, please please be forgiving of us. Um, Zach, I mean, yeah, this is a branding exercise because you're you're not in a closet. You're in your podcast recording studio. There we go. Yes. Uh, so I think you know this is it's just a branding exercise. You're all right. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Uh, podcast studio with a bunch of you know 
wrinkly button downs hanging up um, and a bunch <laughs> it's for of sound shoes. dampening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like that. I like the way you think. See, this is gonna be good. great. You're this all set. Great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, dude, to, to kick us off, um, I we've got a lot of talk, a lot to talk about today. I'm really excited about our conversation. But I always like to throw out a somewhat random question to just let people get to know you a little bit and ask something a little bit more interesting than like, you know, what's your name and, and what do you do? So I thought it would be fun to just kick our conversation off um, by by asking you this question, which is what what important truth do do very few people agree with you on? And again, few is relative. So take that uh, however, sure. you, however you'd like. And again, th- th- this could be super silly, like you know, peanut butter is is absolutely abhorrent, or it, it could be quite serious. Like where you go to college doesn't really matter. Like, where, what what do you believe that very few people agree with you on? Yeah, I mean, I guess like part of my job is being a take merchant. So to a certain extent, like I have many many higher ed takes, and we're going to get into some of those today. For this, I I have two 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 important truths okay one for sports fans and one for everyone uh and i I believe we're we're mostly talking marketing today so the second one the everyone one is really going to be a a, a marketing specific one but okay so the the sports one the sports one is defense is better than offense i i sincerely love watching an entire team of people work together to take all the fun out of sports it it's it, it that to me is really fun. That's part of my, my own background is that, you know, I, I played center back in soccer for those of you who know what that is. Um, you know, I, I love really strong positional defense. I love defense that makes it look so easy that when another team is trying their best to do something interesting and fun and creative and cool, I, I absolutely love the three guys whose entire job it is to ruin that. So, you know, it's, 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 it's not a, t- it's not something I would say in a bar. It's not, but because you specifically asked, I think that's probably the one take I have that the most people who've ever heard it get frustrated by that Ooh, idea. That's good. But I, I love defense. Um, and as for the, the other one, the one that for marketers, um, I honestly, I don't care if every corporation in the world has all the data there is to have on me, because all it means is that when I see an ad, it's going to be relevant to me. Like I'm not afraid of the Soviets having my data. I don't care. I really don't. Because if that means that, you know, I'm having a conversation with my wife about buying a smoker and then an hour later, I start getting ads for smokers. It just means that now I'm going to be better educated about the smoker market. And I'm going to be able to find the right product for me. I, I really, I'm a big fan of weird, creepy, personalized advertising <laughs> because it, it genuinely like, it just tees up the stuff that I actually want. Yeah. So I, you know, it's, it's again, it's I, relatively controversial, uh, but I, I genuinely just like those things. <laughs> Dude, those were both fantastic, fantastic answers. I uh, maybe maybe a couple of the of my favorite answers. Uh, I, I haven't asked this question a ton, but I have asked it a few times. So, well done uh, on the on the advertising front. I, I'm actually totally with you. I, I and again, I also feel like, and I don't know if this is like a generational thing or or whatnot, but it's it's. I feel very similarly. It's like I know people. I know people have way more information on me than than I even am aware of. No. But at the same time, what I get in, in exchange for giving up that 
that information I just I just think is 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 worth it. It's a it, it's a it's a helpful trade off. I'm not I'm not yeah. doing anything that interesting with my life or my career. Like you know, <laughs> I have a podcast. I, like I don't really have state secrets. I don't, yeah, that I yeah, need yeah, to yeah. I, I don't I don't have that much money. Like you know, like it's like whatever. Like there, there's only so much damage you could do to me. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I'm right there with you. And and the defense, dude, that that is a hot take too. Does that carry over to like other aspects oh, of, of your life? Like like oh, you, interesting. Like are 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 you? Would you consider yourself like when it comes to uh, you know investing or when it comes to risk taking? Like are you are you a little bit more? No, definitely not conservative. You're not conservative. When it comes to that. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's, that is an exclusive. So you're, your entire yeah but yeah your entire me, life net worth was in crypto and and now it's not. Um. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> let me flip it around for you though, because like I I really do believe that good good defense is offense, mm. right? Because like yeah. if you're going to like if you think about football for example, like you have the clearest opportunity on defense to score points. I think the Baltimore Ravens won a Super Bowl on the back of their defense outscoring their offense in the Super Bowl. Um so it's, I it it translates. I yeah. think good good defense is offense. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> I I I I love that. Um and again, that's a that's a wonderful hot take. Okay, so if you in in order for our listeners to better understand kind of what you do at the Evolution and how sure. that relates to modern campus. Um, if if you were to explain what you do all day to like mm-hmm. your your ten year old niece or, or nephew, like how would you explain who you are, what your role is, and and how you spend your time? Yeah. So <laughs> I have struggled to explain what I do to my own family. So this this honestly is it's a relevant thing for me to try to break out. Okay, so I'm the editor-in-chief of The Evolution, um, and The Evolution's an online newspaper focused on evolving and innovative models of higher education. So basically what we do is create space for higher education leaders in every corner of the industry to reflect on how the industry is changing and how institutions are adapting to keep pace with those changes. This comes from the fundamental truth of the fact that the modern college serves a very different learner than it's ever served before with very different expectations than they've ever had. Mm. But the models, the policies, the processes, the guidelines, the best practices, every aspect of the status quo of higher education isn't really designed to serve that new audience. So what we want to do is create a, a space where folks can get together and talk about these things. We had to turn our comments off in 2011, which by the way, or, or 2012 rather, which which was earlier than the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed both turned off comments. I I have that as a, as a flag of pride because it means that to a certain extent, we were doing what we set out to do, which was very robustly changing the way people think about education. Um, in terms of the connectivity with Modern Campus, it's a question we get a lot. So Modern Campus and its predecessor, Destiny Solutions, basically provide us the funding, the space, and the autonomy to run a high-quality publication focused on topics that don't appeal to the majority of people in the higher ed space. Mm. So what that means is if, you know, if you're looking at the broadest audience of people in higher education who'd read a higher ed publication, that would generally be faculty. Yeah. But the things yeah. we're publishing about aren't necessarily things that would interest faculty. I mean, we're talking about um, how to how to build a budget for loss leader programs in in the post-secondary space. Like it's it's a fascinating topic for those who are interested in or are doing that work, yeah. but it's not necessarily got broad appeal. Sure. So for Modern Campus, basically they've provided us the, the space and the funding and the resources we need to do that work and to focus on these areas that aren't necessarily on vote. 
But the flip side of that is the stuff that we've been focusing on forever is really starting to make its way into the mainstream. So, you know, at the focus of, of our conversation today is going to be on micro-credentialing. I looked through our archives. I'm pretty sure we published our first article on micro-credentialing in January of 2013. Wow. Wow. Right. Yeah. So this is the kind of stuff that because we've been able to do this, you know, we started publishing on MOOCs when it was still just George Siemens at Athabasca. <laughs> Right. Which I think most yeah. people don't realize George Siemens yeah. was he started at a Canadian university with the first massive open online course huh. before that's before Daphne, before Andrew got together, built Coursera, like before that was George Siemens at Apple I did not University. know that. I had no idea. There you go. Interesting. Right. Okay. So this is the kind of stuff that because we've had that space to operate because modern campus has provided us that space to operate we've been able to do this stuff without having to worry about how it's going to you know how advertisers might feel or how many eyeballs we might get our focus has always been on just good interesting things that are happening and kind of the rest of it will take care of itself quick quick uh, follow-up question there yeah do you have like how would you break down your your readership like in terms of sure. in terms of role roughly like our mm -hmm. our the the example that you just that you just gave sounds like somebody who's interested in sort of like you know developing new revenue streams or or, or the business side of of education right and i yeah. based off of the content that i've read on the evolution I, there's certainly a uh, there's certainly an audience there but what are what are your other sort of like kind of three core audiences people that like regularly uh engage with and and read the evolution yeah so to a certain extent when we look at our subscriber base it's it's mostly folks that are in leadership roles. Okay. Um, so we're really talking anywhere from, you know, program directors and curriculum managers to, you know, registrars and VPs to deans of continuing ed to deans of divisional deans, uh, all the way up to the presidents, provosts and CIOs. And when, when we launched, this was actually, it's interesting, when we launched, um, we really thought we were going to be a niche publication focused on continuing ed, right? Mm. So we figured all the people who are going to be reading our stuff will be like directors of, of continuing education yep. like that you know it, it just made sense um but we launched in january of 2012 okay and you might recall january of 2012 was when the recovery started so out of out of the 2008 great recession um you know it was the once in a lifetime recession ha um so in 2012 the recovery started and people go, started going back to work Enrollment and uh, unemployment are, are based, they're linked, right? Yep. So the yep. higher unemployment is, the higher the enrollment numbers are. Once people started going back to work and because programming was largely traditional at that time, it was largely degree-based, it was largely full-time, um, it was largely on-premise on, on, on campus. Yeah. Um, once people started going back to, to work and enrollment numbers started to decline again, there wasn't the same level of state um, state dollars available to public higher ed institutions to maintain the balance that they'd had prior to the recession. So all of a sudden you had institutions that had been losing money all through the recession, but made up for it with tuition increases and increased enrollments. All, all of a sudden, all that money started going away as people went back to work. And here we are, this tiny little publication talking about how to be entrepreneurial in the post-secondary space, how to balance delivering and executing on your mission with generating revenue, how to focus on enrollment scalability and serving the modern learner. And, and so when we took our first serious look at who our subscribers were, we realized it was mostly presidents and provosts, yeah. not leaders of continuing ed, yeah. because yeah. we just happened to come in talking about that stuff at the right time. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And 
you know, t- to me, I, I'm glad you brought up the entrepreneurial component to your content because that's that's what I've what I've garnered too is like anybody that really is is actually interested in thinking a little bit differently about education programming, thinking a little bit differently about the student experience and whatnot. You guys do have some some pretty like not jarring in a bad way, but some provocative. That's a better word. Like good good sort of like pr- provocative content. Um, that speaks to anyone that really does care about this, that, you know, this industry and wants to innovate in it. And so that, that's super helpful. Appreciate that context. So you are a prolific content producer. And, um, I, you know, I, again, as I was prepping a couple thoughts for our conversation today Mm -hmm. was scrolling through. And, um, as, as you've already alluded to, you guys have a lot of content about micro credential programs, and it's not something that we on this show have talked much about. Um, and so, I really want to talk about, you know, in the spirit of us, uh, of a looming, you know, God forbid, uh, recession, um, I, you know, there, there's, there could be another 2012, right? Like, uh, or, yeah. you know, where people are like in this mindset of, wow, we have to, hopefully it won't be as bad as, as eight, as 08, but like, here we are, we've got to think a little bit differently. This could actually be a huge opportunity for higher education, right? And after years of, of um, the brand of higher education being, somewhat tarnished or, um, you know, thought thought twice about, if you will. And micro-credentialing is this interesting sort of like budding, I don't know if you would call it a trend, um, more than it is sort of a, another another offering type um, that, mm-hmm. that more and more schools, that are, that's coming a little bit more into the mainstream. So I, I really wanted to chat about like the pros and cons of these pro, of launching these programs, the, the product market fit of these programs. And ultimately, like how you think higher ed marketers should think about the promotion of these programs, like how sure. who, who are we promoting these to? How how does that promotion work, etc. But I thought just to you know start this off, it'd be really good to define what micro credentialing is. And, and I know yeah. that like based off of some of the content I read, the the definitions are a little bit all over the place. So like from from your perspective and the work that you've done, what is micro credentialing? Absolutely. So, I mean, by its strictest definition, which is, as you've, as you've said, pretty loose, a micro-credential is anything that isn't a degree. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and that's really, really flexible. Um, I think the majority of micro-credentials that we see uh, tend to be sort of non-credit uh, short course or short-term offerings. But what that actually translates into can, can be anywhere from sort of two weeks to a year and a half. Um, so that, you know, I think that's that's there's there's a large degree of flexibility. Like micro credentials un- encompass a number of things that higher education has done for decades: certificates, certifications, yeah. uh, short courses. Um, then within micro credentials, and this is where this is where I see a lot of confusion. So I appreciate you asking this. Um, okay, so we have micro credentials, right? Which yep. again, very broadly, anything that's not a degree. Micro credentials can be stackable, mm-hmm. right? So you can add three or four micro-credentials together in certain circumstances to get something that's credit-bearing or even add a number of micro-credentials together to earn a degree when that degree has been designed with micro-credential stackability in, yeah, in mind, okay. yep. right? Yep. Then we have badges. So a lot of people confuse, again, there's a conflation between badges and micro-credentials. A badge is a digital credential, right? So a digital credential is any kind of credential digitally represented. So like LinkedIn you can learning, have yeah, yeah. 100%, yep. right? But you can even have some schools will offer degrees where they'll offer the degree as they'll offer digital verification of the degree, right? So yep. that's a digital credential. Got it, yep. A badge is when a micro-credential and a digital credential come together. So a badge is basically any micro-credential that's digitally represented. So this is 
there's a lot of terminology that is being kicked around yeah. in the higher ed space right now when it comes to things that aren't traditional degree programs. And I feel like because of the way that our industry does tend to approach risk, because we tend to be more aligned with thinking about innovations in terms of the history of our space, we get more locked into trying to understand the terminology than we do in trying to understand the opportunity. Yep. Um, so this is it's 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 important to have have a good grip on on what these different things are and how they interrelate with one another because that interrelation is where you can start to see opportunities to serve very different, very new kinds of audiences that again aren't necessarily served by the you know traditional four-year paper-based degree. And, and, you know, we've seen a number of instances in the past few years where everyone from presidential candidates to job candidates, um, you know, use the, the lack of clarity around credentials to signal, you know, maybe an education history that they, they haven't earned. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this is where we start to see, you know, micro-credentialing, digital credentialing, digital verification of credentialing, providing some level of clarity where right now it's it's very much just you're trusting the person who's telling you they've earned that credential to have actually earned it. Hey, all Zach here from Enrollify. If you like this podcast, chances are you'll like other Enrollify shows too. Our podcast network is growing by the month and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. Our shows feature a selection of the industry's best as your hosts. Learn from Mickey Baines, Jeremy Tears, Jamie Hunt, Corinne Myers, Jamie Gleason, and many, many more. You can learn more about the Enrollify Podcast Network at podcasts.enrollify.org. Our shows help higher ed marketers and admissions professionals find their next big idea. Find yours at podcasts.enrollify.org. And actually, just clarify some things in, in my own mind, which is good. Um, <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know that I like knew what a badge was uh, exactly. Mm -hmm. So this is this is helpful. Um, so what like what are some of the the more common or or more well known micro credentialing programs? Like I, I would imagine you know these are i i think of like you know uh hbx and like you know stanford's uh yep. whatever they call their uh version but like you know you, you go on someone's linkedin profile and you say and you see that they went to harvard or stanford and then you scroll down and you realize oh you got like the you know the digital you you, you completed your like uh business analytics you know digital certificate from stanford yeah. or harvard like you didn't actually go to hbs so what but what are some of the more well-known micro-credential programs um and then you know which which institutions from your perspective are sort of like the leaders in this in this category of programming absolutely i mean it's tough to say right because there are so many uh micro credentials on offer and, and they're generally non-degree which means that they are quicker to to develop and to launch and one thing that i, I want to make clear when we talk about the the lack of accreditation for many micro-credential programs is that doesn't necessarily in fact in many cases it it flies in the face of what people consider rigorous. However, yeah. right, a micro-credential is not generally not going to be financial aid eligible, which means the people that are enrolling in those programs are paying out of pocket for the offering, yeah. right? Yeah. 
And as a result of that, the expectation for the ROI of that of that education investment is significantly higher than something that's subsidized or something that's supported by financial aid. Mm. So the the level of rigor of a micro credential program in many cases has to be more significant than that of a credit bearing offering because that that credential needs to immediately provide value to that individual as soon as they finish it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's a very different mechanism to, de to define rigor. Now, in terms of the most well-known micro-credential programs, the PMP certification, Yeah, that's yeah. that's a micro-credential, huh, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you think about it in that term, you, you start to really understand the breadth and the scope of the micro-credentialing space. Um, now, in terms of institutions that are doing really interesting work with that, you, and you've named a few, um, Sta the Stanford uh, Center for, for Professional Development is, is doing some really, really interesting stuff with micro-credentialing. Um, you start to see some some colleges that are really doing really cool stuff as well at the community college level. Um, I think Miami Dade College provides some interesting examples of using micro credentials uh, and employer partnerships to provide people with pathways into careers that they might not otherwise have been able to qualify for or even really think about. Yeah. Um, here in Canada, I think the micro credentialing space is is really taking off because there is government support for yeah. launching these kinds of offerings. Uh, Ryerson University, Western University in, in London, Ontario, um, are, are two schools that are doing some really, really cool stuff in that space. I think Dalhousie University out east. Um, in the States, again, I mean, the entire SUNY system has come up with a micro-credential uh, infrastructure that creates some kind of unity across the state of New York in terms of what a micro-credential is, how to access it, what it means. Um, that work is super, super important and incredibly difficult to do well. Uh, the Rochester Institute of Technology had just launched a badging, uh, a, a, a division uh, specifically aligned with alternative credentialing that's going to be run by by a fellow named Dennis DiLorenzo, mm. uh, who used to be at NYU. Um, so I think like the, the micro-credentialing space broadly is, is really starting to take off. And there is some fascinating work happening um, at basically every level of many institutions to ensure that these offerings are, are sort of market relevant. To ensure that the offerings are, are meeting students where they are, but at the same time that the offerings are, are rigorous and outcomes oriented and and for the most part designed specifically to drive people into careers where there is a specific need for learning that doesn't amount all the way to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because that's if you think about the middle skill labor market, that's where jobs are right now. It's it's you know, there is a significant number of jobs available where someone doesn't need an entire college education to access the work. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, and and on that note, I I want to like ask you to help compare. So like when when I think about like the the Lambda schools of the world and I think Lambda has a new name yep. now. I'm forgetting what the name their new name is, but um Oh, why would you do that? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't oh, know. No. I don't know. They yeah, they have they have some it's called Blue something maybe. Um Bloom, anyway. the Bloom Institute. The, okay, there we go. The Bloom, yeah. not Blue. <laughs> uh Close. the Bloom Institute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so they um, obviously, uh, at least their business model was a couple years ago when I last talked about them and, and looked into them. Uh, they have income share agreements as part of their of their programming. After a mm -hmm. student graduates from their coding boot camp, what have you, X percentage of their first or you know first three five you know four or five years of salary uh, goes goes back to um, the Bloom Institute. So, how like when when micro credential programs, like would would you consider 
they're offering a micro-credential program or yeah. would you categorize okay so you would so then in terms of how this fits within the context of traditional like nonprofit higher education that the, the, the schools that do have these micro-credential programs do any of them have like income share agreements in place or uh you, you talk about the importance of having like roi be mm -hmm. be very obvious especially because most of these programs are not qualifying for any sort of meaningful financial aid or support are you aware of like ISAs like popping up within the the context of traditional nonprofit education? And if so, like there's where not are they a popping ton. up? Okay, yeah, there's yeah. really not a ton. At Purdue, um, and this isn't just their micro credentialing. I believe institution wide, Purdue has launched ISAs for for degree programming, and that's just how they're doing their financial models right now. But if you think about the the business model of higher education, launching micro credentials in and of itself poses a challenge yeah, to the traditional financial course. model, yes, right? Like yeah. the, the post-secondary revenue model is designed around having sort of consistent and predictable revenue for four years from any one student. Yep. And a micro-credential model, especially once that micro-credential becomes competency-based, which we're not even, let's not even touch today, right? <laughs> but once you get out of a time-based micro-credential into a competency-based micro-credential, all of a sudden you're really talking about challenging the, the foundational financial planning structure of a post-secondary institution. So I don't know that there's micro-credential offerings in the post-secondary space that are ISA-based, yeah. but at the same time, generally speaking, a boot camp can cost twelve to $40,000 yeah. in, yeah. in tuition and fees, right? Yeah. So your average micro-credential is not costing that amount to a, to a learner or rather your average micro-credential offered by a post-secondary institution is, is not coming into that kind of realm. So I don't know that there's the same necessity for ISAs as there is in the bootcamp space, because basically what, what a bootcamp is asking is, hey, on spec, give us $40,000 and we'll guarantee you a job yeah. where you'll make about double that your first year. Yep. It's a tough swing to say, but pay us $40,000 up front and we're, we promise you that's what's going to happen. <laughs> so for higher ed institutions, it's, it's less of a swing where it's, you know, it's a still a few thousand dollars. It might even amount to $10,000, but it's a, it's a more approachable ticket price than, than what's happening in, in the, the bootcamp space. Yeah, yeah. Now are most of these programs, are, are they like business and, and tech focused, like in terms of the actual content of of the program yeah i think it's there you what we're seeing more and more is that they are largely outcome oriented so yeah. we're not seeing a lot of micro credentials in liberal arts for example sure, sure. Yeah. um and and actually what what is kind of interesting and, and i think a model that that more and more institutions are looking at is how to flip the script a little bit on degree programs now this is especially happening in the community college space so the community college space any degree program is oriented for the most part to make someone very employable right yep. whether whether it's in whether it's in an english associates degree or whether it's in sort of welding sciences like the the design of the community college program is to to to, to support you know one aspect of its mission which is workforce readiness However, because of the general education requirements for an associate's degree, which tend to be stacked at the front of the degree program, that's why you have such high rates of dropout and yeah. stopout in yeah. community college degree programs. I believe the attrition rate from first year to second year in community college programs is something like 50%, yeah. some, something to that rate. Jeez, I, yeah. I, I had this, this stat relatively recently and 
obviously now I've forgotten it. And it's a lot though. It's a lot. Podcast. It's high. It is a high number. So the the idea is, and this is something that Monty Sullivan and and his team at the Louisiana community college um, system are, are looking at. It's not what they're called. Louisiana community and technical college system is basically they're looking at, well, how do we flip that, that model? So that if someone's pursuing a degree, they come in and they learn their work ready skills first so that they can get their job. And then once they actually need the degree, so once they're in a position where they want to be promoted into a managerial or supervisory role, once they're in a position where they actually need the degree to advance their career, the steps they want to go, they can come back and finish the gen ed to earn the credential, right? And that's why is that not a more common model? But I think that's what we're starting to see. So yes, micro-credentials, generally speaking, are more oriented around sort of the technical skills uh, that are required for someone to to be employable in the short term. Whereas, you know, the the programming that's oriented around the, the traditional post-secondary degree is more oriented around teaching people how to think, teaching people how to be how to be lifelong learners, teaching people those foundational skills that are required for, for very different kinds of work. Yeah. So I think you're seeing the degrees, you're seeing people think about what the credentials are more and more and what they represent, and then trying to find the credential that's right for their goals. It's also why we see so many uh, enrollments in micro-credential programming coming from folks that already have a degree. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because they're they're now looking at, like, I have that, if you think about, like, the T-shaped professional or <laughs> now you're going to start seeing, and I promise you this. We talk about the T-shaped professional, right? You have your broad set of skills that are represented horizontally and then deep deep technical knowledge represented, right? But we're going to start seeing pie-shaped professionals where you're going to have, you know, now I've got two technical expertises or your comb-shaped professional where you have like five or more. This is, it's just going to become a thing. So I think that's where folks, uh, especially folks with degrees who are early career and mid-career are starting to look at micro-credentials as being really valuable as part of their professional development, basically to skill themselves up for a promotion, skill themselves up for a lateral move into a growing industry. Um, And we're seeing micro-credentials in spaces like green technology or computing sciences or these kinds of areas where there is a very specific technical knowledge that's required, but a technical knowledge that's very accessible. Yeah, yeah. It's reminding me of um, a conversation I had with Brandon Bustide probably like, I don't know, a year and a half ago. He talks a lot about like credigrees, I think is like his, the the way he talks about it, right? It's like, what does it look like to have a credential and a, a bachelor's degree and equip folks with that after after four years or you know five years whatever it might be um and it, you know it does it does just seem that that it, it it seems like that's something that the market is demanding um and that folks have an appetite for or, or are interested in i'm curious yes. based off of like your research and just conversations with folks across across the industry in a, in a wide variety of contexts uh, what how are you how are you hearing or seeing schools walk through the process of like discerning whether or not they should launch micro credentials like what yeah. what are what are typically the use cases is it more often than not because schools are in a tough financial situation and they need to quickly spin up some new you know revenue streams or like hopefully it's not it's not all that um how how are schools kind of thinking through whether or not they should launch these programs for sure. Well, and thank you for bringing up that research because I really should have mentioned it off the top. Something that we do do with with Modern Campus on a, on a fairly regular basis is partner with them to develop research on areas like this. So we have, you know, on the evolution side, we publish. We, 
I'm going to call it reams of articles by higher ed leaders talking anecdotally about their work in micro-credentialing. But we wanted to back that up or get a, a firmer understanding with numbers of, of, of the market itself. So uh, last year, we partnered with Modern Campus and with Opsia, which is the University Professional and Continuing Ed Association, to actually develop some research on this topic. And, and I'm going to mention some of the findings at a very high level please, from please. that research. But if you know, if your listeners want to access it, visit moderncampus.com slash micro credential. Uh, and you'll you'll be able to get into that. And we can we can and, throw that in the show in. notes too. So, so if and, and thank anyone you. yeah scroll Appreciate down. Appreciate that. Yeah. If you want to go look at that research, uh, it'll be in the show notes below. But yeah, go ahead, go ahead. What are like Great. the power so, stats? Yeah. So we asked folks, you know, um from what what are some of the goals, right? How how does it align? So um, micro-credentialing, an overwhelming majority of survey respondents said that micro-credentials help them achieve institutional enrollment and revenue goals. Institutional, mm. not just continuing it, institutional yeah. enrollment yeah. and revenue goals. It helps position them for the future. And importantly, they highlight that micro-credentialing helps them stay competitive against entities like boot camps. Yeah. Um, because in, in a lot of ways, what it, what it indicates to me is two things. One, that the post-secondary product is evolving, right? Folks are looking for something that's foundationally different from a post-secondary education. And as you mentioned before, it's got a lot to do with the cost. It's got a lot to do with the time. And the, the fact is that the demographic of higher education, as I mentioned right off the top, is, is foundationally different, Yeah. right? We have more and more, whether they're 26 or whether they're 16 or whether they're 46, we have more and more people who are specifically coming into higher education with numerous competing priorities for their time, that are working jobs, that are looking at education as a pathway to something greater, right? And we're now in an economy where having found some foundational skill set gained from a post-high school education experience is a necessity, Yep. right? Yep. But we also have 39 million Americans with some college education, but no credential period, right? Not not a degree, not a certificate, not, right? So when we look at the, the, the necessity of post-secondary attainment, it's higher and higher and higher. And, and, and by the way, we are using the term attainment now, not completion. Completion refers to degree completion. Attainment refers to earning any kind of high quality credential, whether that's degree bearing or not, whether that's credit bearing or non-degree, right? So this is where higher education is starting to adapt to the demands of, of, of the market, probably for the first time in, in two millennia, huh. right? Where, yeah. where the institution is recognizing the need to be responsive to the learner rather than putting the learner in a place where they need to be responsive to the institution, right? Because the institution is recognizing that its history is based in being a gatekeeper of knowledge, right? Or at least that's the way that as we industrialized education, that's the way that it pivoted from being this sort of like Aristotle driving debate in, in a forum, right? Or even if we look at what higher education was in, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where it was very much oriented around a small group of, of very sort of wealthy individuals talking about philosophy or preparing themselves for careers in business law or medicine, yeah. right? We we really shifted the purpose and the focus of education with with. I guess the advent of the land grant university and then the Morrill Act, which basically de demanded that any publicly, uh, any land grant institution had to have a cooperative extension that took the expertise of the university, made it accessible to the people. And we've largely seen that model executed as a agriculture model, but 
the fact is that more and more individuals need more and more from the post-secondary institution. And the post-secondary institution is now starting to adapt to make sure that not only do people have access to, to the kinds of learning they need, but they have access to the style of learning that they need. They have yeah. access to the outcome that they need. And I think this is, you know, both a business necessity and a mission necessity. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's really where, where a lot of this is coming from and where that recognition of the fact that micro-credentials fit into the mission of the modern university does come from, yeah. is that these offerings are not only what's demanded, but they're what's needed for, especially for folks who can't afford two to six years of post-secondary education. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This provides a pathway for them to get the skills and get the, the knowledge that they need to achieve a short term outcome while ideally teeing themselves up to come back for a second or a third engagement that's going to help them continue to progress their, their education. Because the fact of the matter is that when we think about the, the foundational traditional model of the post-secondary institution, as we said earlier, the financial model is, is designed around predictable revenue for two to four years. Right. But the, the, the necessity of the modern labor market is for people to be lifelong learners. It's for people to continue to engage in their education. It's for people to continue to return to the, to the, to the business. And if you think about this in, in purely business terms, if you told me about a business that sold every single customer one product and then asked them for donations for the rest of their lives, <laughs> that would be insane. Could you imagine? So you buy like, I don't know, um, you buy a letter opener on on uh, on Amazon, yeah, right. Yep. And you buy your letter opener. They send you your letter opener. You say, "Great, I have the letter opener." And then Amazon sends you an email saying, "We hope you liked that letter opener. Could you duke us another two bucks?" <laughs> you're like, "No, I, I bought the letter. I already did that. Our interaction is now done." Yeah, yeah. Right? But what does Amazon do? Oh, you bought a letter opener. Well, you'll probably need some kind of thing where you can stack all those letters or some now open. Yeah, or some pens, right? you know, to to write your letter. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. You seem like someone who's designing an office. Here's some <laughs> stuff that can help. Right. And this is where we start to transition from like, what's the role of the institution? Yeah. Do you exist at a single point in an individual's life? Or do you exist as a partner in their continuous education, yeah. right? And continuous education is critical for success in, in the modern labor market. So the modern post-secondary institution is, is now looking at their, their array of products and saying, okay, we are very well set up to serve people from the age of 17 to the age of 22. We've got that on lock. What do we do for the next 60 years? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And rather than thinking about students as alumni, right? Students, alumni. Now it's, okay, how do we serve lifelong learners? Yeah. Right. How do we create an open loop that's going to continue having people come back into the institution at every point of need? And then you start thinking about, well, what's the service array, right? So how do we restructure services in the post-secondary institution to adapt to that? So maybe we have lifelong career advising, right? Maybe we build robust partnerships with local employers so that as individuals continue to progress in their careers, we're the preferred partner for them to come back and get that next piece of education to go and progress and, and be promoted. So I think when, when you start thinking about the opportunity for the future post-secondary institution, there are so many things that the future college or the future university could be. And a lot of it stems from this core idea of how do we modularize the post-secondary education deliverable to make it more bite-sized more accessible and more outcomes oriented that's micro credential yeah oh wow that was that was incredible man i it's cool right that, like I mean, it really is cool you, you just got me inspired yeah this is great and, and you know one of the things that's also interesting to to remember and keep in mind is like 
you know, the, the Bloom Institute and, you know, like Austin Coding Academy is another big one that um, I know has a, has a decent brand reputation and whatnot. All these, all these companies, these startups, they're still like really new. Like they haven't been around that long. When you're dealing with an institution that's been, you know, in the local community for 50, 100, you know, plus yeah. years, right? The, the level of trust in that institution can be really, really high. So like you could, you could clone one of the product offerings from, you know, ACA or, or the Bloom Institute, bring that over and purely from slapping your brand on that alone, right? Mm -hmm. That should, that should resonate and add a, a level of credibility so that when users are, when, when prospective students are comparing offerings, do I want to take this via Austin Coding Academy who's been around for three years or do I want to take this, you know, from the university of blah, 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 that, you know, my, uh, I've, I've known for generations, right? Like my family has known for generations. And again, assuming the, the quality of the, of the product, right, is, is, is equal. I think from a brand standpoint, you're going to go with the, the one that's, you know, trusted and, and been around longer. So, well, so there's two, there's two parts of that, that, that are really interesting. Right? Yeah. The first is that the institutional brand is always going to win out, yep. but the product nece won't necessarily. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is what, why boot camps came about in the first place yeah. because they recognized a market gap where people needed education in a certain field and higher ed institutions weren't adapting to it. I have to believe that when the next big industry shift comes along higher ed institutions will be a little faster off the mark yeah. and we're seeing it you know it's it's interesting we're seeing it in in the cannabis industry uh where yeah. as soon as cannabis yeah. was legalized almost every major public institution has some kind of programming designed around supporting cannabis education yeah yep. right for from an agricultural perspective from a business and marketing perspective so i think we are seeing that that transition in the way that higher ed leaders think about their business uh but then the second part of it is that we're seeing more and more white labeling as well, because we can't expect every institution to have every level of expertise for every single deliverable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But when you look at the, the business model of a company like Trilogy, which is a boot camp, they work to white label their programming with their post-secondary partners, right? So that it's a, a coding boot camp that's offered by the University of Texas at Austin in partnership with Trilogy. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then the the program has the the UT Austin brand on it. It's recognized and verified by UT Austin faculty, but every aspect of the program from the enrollment management to the uh, to the marketing communications, to the actual delivery of the programming and the construction of the curriculum is done by Trilogy, right? So it kind of saves the institution from having to invest in the startup cost of a new program, which can be in the tens of thousands, yeah, right? Or more. So that is one model that we're seeing. I think there's there's a point of diminishing returns on that though, to a certain extent, because like, you know, you're getting basically a, a revenue share where the institution will get 20%, the, the boot camp will get 80 or whatever the, the ratio that they negotiate is. Um, and 20% of nothing is better than 100% of, or 20% of something better than 100% yep, of nothing, nothing yeah. for sure. But then in 10, 15, 20 years is, you know, I think we're seeing that in the traditional OPM space now yep. where schools that relied on OPMs to get them live with online programming still don't have the the culture okay. or yeah. the yeah. muscle memory internally to yeah. develop online programming themselves. So they're very reliant on the partner. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to start to see the same thing in, in the micro-credentialing space for institutions that go fully in on doing white label programming as opposed to kind of a both and scenario to get off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And so I think, you know, I think with all of this stuff, there'll be folks who, 
test out all sorts of models. Um, and I think, you know, in an ideal situation, if you do have the resources and you can build something in house, um, and, or, and, or acquire something somehow, right? Like, I think that that's, that's a model that, uh, I'd like to see more of. Um, yeah. and you know, quite frankly, the more of these you roll out again to, to talk about the elephant in the room, the more your traditional programming, uh, gets a second look, right? If I, if I can get something that I think I need to get an entry level job at a tech company in, you know, uh, three months or, or six months, as opposed to three to six years, and it mm -hmm. costs, you know, a fraction of the price, I'm going to try that out first, and then only come back for a degree if, if I don't get that entry level job at, at a tech company, right? So like schools well, are, are also, I, yeah. I'm going to disagree with you there. Cause I think it's about, again, I think it's a both and where I think what happens is that individual, you know, wants the entry level job at the tech company, right? Yeah. So they do the boot camp, they get the entry level job, but any of your listeners will, will tell you that your, your technical skills will only get you so far. Right. And sure. at a certain yep. point, that degree is going to be necessary. So the question is, did that bootcamp, did that micro-credential program, was it taught well? Yeah. Was the institution caring? Did I have a good experience with the institution? Yeah. Okay, great. Because now I need a degree because I want a promotion. Or now I need a degree because I want that next job. I, I want to move beyond the entry level. Yeah. And I'm going to come back to the institution to earn that degree or to complete that, that program to get that next credential so that I can get promoted. And this is how the institution creates a symbiotic relationship yeah. with its learner. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I think like we, we really do, and this is, I'm, a, I'm the one of the great advocates that you'll ever meet for micro-credentialing. But the fact of the matter is that micro-credentials alone aren't necessarily enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's why you see a lot of folks with degrees coming back and getting micro-credentials because it's helping them build that technical skill set. But you still need the broad competencies that'll allow you to be a good citizen, a great employee, a great collaborator, a great team member. Like these things all come from the foundations that are built into traditional degree programs. Yeah. And that's so this is why I think it's really important when we talk about micro-credentials. And again, I'm, I'm going to go back to a piece that we did in I want to say 2013 or 2014 is an interview with Paul LeBlanc, who, by the way, shout out to Paul LeBlanc. Thanks for trusting us. Uh, could you imagine a, a guy with his reputation doing an interview with, with us a year after we launched? I, you know, massive, massive respect for, for him as an innovator. And um, so we, we did an interview with them when they launched College for America at Southern New Hampshire, which yep. is competency-based um, community college education programming, at, at a, you know, fully online, fully buffet style. And, and his point was like, we can't throw the baby out with bathwater here, right? There's always going to be a market for traditional education. There's always going to be a need for degrees. What we need to do is provide alternatives for people that aren't being served by that kind of offering at that point in time. Yep. And that's what I think we really need to be talking about in, in this circumstance is not necessarily looking at micro-credentials as a replacement for traditional education, but instead looking at micro-credentials as an alternative pathway for people to get to that outcome that they need, yeah. right? At the end of the day, like... Folks are still going to need the the foundations of an, of a of a of the education that comes out of a degree program, again for citizenry for for you know being able to advance whether you want to look at practically or philosophically, but I think a micro credential provides them the access to the kind of learning that they might need at a point of time that would help an institution stand out to them in the future. Yeah. Do you think though that like 
like I'm imagining going back to our little example here of yeah. somebody getting a micro credential, going in, uh, getting a, a a nice solid job at a, at a tech company. Yes, there comes a point where they hit some sort of ceiling, and they're like, you know what? I don't know anything about managing people, or I don't know anything about like you know how to lead a team. What you know, mm -hmm. what have you? Or my interpersonal skills are severely underdeveloped compared to you know my my colleagues yeah. or whatnot. And then they and then they do come back right for the degree. Do you, do you think then that like because a lot of a lot of like the fundamentals of of a college degree, like just looking at like the general education requirement. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I'd argue um, that that a lot of that you can accelerate your learning on the job a lot quicker. Like you don't you don't need to be taught like Got business it. 101, right? When mm -hmm. you've just spent a year and a half working at a startup and understand at least to some degree, like the level of how businesses operate. Whereas, so like, so like, do you think like those who might take this non-traditional path of getting the micro credential, mm -hmm. getting a job, then realizing they need more education, they're not, they're not qualified for a master's degree. Right. But they also don't necessarily need to be in like entry level courses. No, right. So correct. like, how, how yeah. do you think about like what the programming shifts will need to be for students that take this path, as opposed to a student that kind of walks through a four-year degree in a traditional fashion? I mean, you're, you're asking a fascinating question here because we're getting into another topic that I love, which is the idea that learning doesn't only happen inside the classroom. And this is another piece of what's coming out of the micro-credential movement, the competency-based education movement, is this idea that higher ed institutions have been historically very tied to learning being defined in a very specific way. Yeah, yeah. And any other approaches to learning being lesser than. Yep, yep. So one of the things that we're seeing happen now is a greater recognition for the need for prior learning assessment and a greater opportunity or a greater openness from post-secondary institutions to offer folks credit when they're able to display that they've learned skills or they've learned competencies or they have the requisite experience that they don't need to do some of these early stage coursework, right? Yeah. So that what that really comes down to though is, is a challenging process of becoming very, very clear about what the learning outcomes of every course you offer are, right? And then being able to map and assess those, which is something, frankly, we should be doing anyway. <laughs> if we're going to offer a course and we're going to charge for that course, we should know what it does and we should know what it's for and we should know what people learn and we should know how to assess that they did. Right. So it's it's what's been interesting in the last few years is and this is what I say about micro credentials is it foundationally changes the, the, the paradigm of higher ed, because as you pull these little threads right about what a micro credential implies, you start to recognize a structural thing that has to change in the in the core of how higher ed works. Right. So we're talking about this little thread, people taking a non traditional pathway to their education and career development. What we've opened up is a conversation about what's the foundations of learning, yeah. right? And that, yeah. this is what I mean. Like yeah. when when you start taking apart some of these structures that were designed around the the the, the sort of traditional status quo institution, you recognize that there's a number of implications that are embedded within them, yeah. right? And once you start challenging that implication, once you start challenging the inference that we've all been asked to make about what the degree represents or what traditional education pathways represent, and we recognize that you don't need business 101 if you're running a business. Yeah, yeah. And then you start to ask, well, okay, well, what, well, then what does business 101 do? And then how, wait, how do we assess that people who did business 101 actually do those things? And then how do we reverse engineer the degree program so that someone who has the requisite experience doesn't have to do a thing that they already know. We There are countless examples of people who have, you know, been working as accountants for 30 years and then want to get their MBA and have to do an entry-level accounting course. Yeah. 
Like, why on earth would I pay for this? Yeah. Right. So this is where you start to see prior learning assessment. You start to see competency recognition. You start to see credit equivalency starting to become a more and more and more important topic. But then you get into questions of scalability. Right. How do you assess the, the experience of 40 people who want to come into this course who all have different levels of experience? How do you ensure that if there's one piece of econ 101 that someone who's been an accountant for 40 years doesn't have that they're able to learn that thing? Well, maybe we start to modularize our courses. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So there's there's a whole Pandora's box that lives within the, the concept of micro credentialing, which is that we have to start getting very practical about what the education process looks like, how we differentiate. I'm, I'm going to call them soft skills. I realize that's a horrible term. Maybe <laughs> essential skills is better. Um, you know, but when you that say soft sense. skills, everyone sense. knows yeah, what it got, is yeah, right away. It. Yeah. So we're going to say soft skills for now, but you know, how we differentiate soft skill development and technical skill development, where those things come together. These are all things that we need to get very real about when we start thinking about the future of higher education. And this, by the way, isn't a thing that every institution needs to do in its holistic form. Yeah. What, what, what I'm saying here is that different institutions serve different students. There are 4,500 accredited post-secondary institutions in the United States, I think. So when you're talking about 4,500 institutions in clustered in various communities, serving very different populations, designed to serve very different audiences, historically, every institution has followed the Harvard model. And there's this belief that every single institution needs to operate the same way, but that's not true. Every institution serves different learners who are looking for different things. So what we need to do when it comes to micro-credential strategy, when it comes to prior learning assessment, when it comes to learning outcome development, all these things, right, is look at, well, who are the students we serve and what do they need from us? Yeah. And then structure your approach to these things around what they need, as opposed to coming at it the other way and trying to do everything all at once. Yeah, well, and just to piggyback on that, like, while, while each institution is going to serve a different market segment and 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 should really be critical and in, in, in their thinking around who who are who is our target audience what do the people in our community need yeah. you know even if we're spinning up online programs are most of the people that are taking our online programs still in an hour radius roughly from our campus right all these questions are, are, are crucial to wrestle with but at the same time i think you know the thing that has changed is that the consumer has dramatically changed meaning like yes. And I would argue that there are there are more there are more um, um, uh, expectations that today's consumers have that are consistent, even if you're from a different demographic, even if you have a different level of education, whatever it might be, the expectations of like the modern consumer and how we interact with brands and how we interact with companies is more similar than it is different, right? Yeah. And therefore, there's going to be, regardless of who you're going after, some basic like table stake expectations for what it means to consume content, right? And and what what the the base standard of like the quality of that content experience needs to be like, regardless of the kind of program that you're serving, regardless if we're talking about a micro credential or a traditional degree. And I think that that's the thing that like is really really important for for folks to just remember. And I think people know this is just that just because you're serving a different market, just because you, you have a different product, whatever it might be, whatever your offering is, it doesn't mean that your consumer, it doesn't mean that the, the student, right, has a different level of expectation around no. the quality of that delivery, right? Like, or the, or, yeah. or, or the accessibility of, of that content. Well, and, and, you know, let's bring it to, to marketing for a second, because I know that that's, you know, something that we do need to talk about. And, when we think about like how these programs are marketed or how you get these offerings in front of the right people, I'd say there's kind of like 
because the institution serves so many audiences, the .edu website becomes a critical part of your of your marketing mix, right? Like being able to tell that story through your website, being able to channel people to the right offerings, and this is where you know as you start having students build accounts into the into the website, being able to leverage information that's in your SIS. So you know you're you know this is the student number, you know this is the stuff they've done before, and teeing up right on the front page. Here's something else that you might be interested in. We talked about Amazon earlier right? Being able to tee up these little personalizations and being able to tee up little hints or little prompts to get people to think about programming that's maybe adjacent to what they'd otherwise be doing starts to become a really, really important component of, of the modern marketing mix for a higher ed institution. I genuinely believe it all starts on the website, right? Yeah. Like how are we using course catalogs as part of our promotion strategy? Um, when you have a certificate program that's available and someone finds it through Google, is there a tab or, or some kind of widget on that page that shows them job offerings and salary expectations and things like that right in the catalog, yeah. right? Like these are the, the kinds of things that from, from a marketing perspective, marketing is often looked at as the be all and end all of why a program succeeded or failed. And, and you know, whether that's fair or not, the fact is that that's what happens. Marketers are under a tremendous amount of pressure to make programs work. And I think these these little these little things, being able to leverage the website effectively, being able to to channel people to to the right sort of calls to action or the right opportunities, noticing that someone you know within an automated fashion, noticing if someone's a repeat visitor to the website that there maybe they need a new CTA that's going to drive them to a particular program offering or an FAQ page or you know if they're visiting from out of state to 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 drive them towards an out of state pricing page, like little things like this can start to make a huge difference when it comes to actually channeling students towards that enrollment registration decision. Um, I genuinely believe though that that whether it's a degree program or whether it's a, uh, a certificate, showing people the, the prospective ROI of their program, showing them local job uh, job opportunities and openings, showing them, you know, how different uh, how, how their, their different programs might affect their salary uh, earnings these are going to be the things that become table stakes in our industry in the next like two to three years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I love that you said in the next two to three years too, because I think there's still this expectation by, by some that, Oh, this is like a, this is a, a future future problem. And it's like, no, 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 This is just, this is what it takes to play the game. Problem. Yeah. This is a today problem. And in fact, if you wait two to three years to even start thinking about this or implementing it, you're, you're already too late. Uh, this is, this has been amazing, uh, dude. And I, you know, we, I think we got to like three of the questions that I had actually prepared. And so we just talked about a lot of other stuff, but that, that's, you know, I think that this is um, an incredibly important topic. We'll just have to have you back on and, and uh, we can talk more about really anything. I think you're, sure. you're, you're a wealth of knowledge. So this is, this has been a lot of fun. Um, if, if folks want to learn a little bit more about you, kind of what you do, folks want to subscribe to the evolution. If they want to learn a little bit more about modern campus, like what is What's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah. We'll include links so, to show in, in, in the show. We'll, we'll throw the links in, in the bottom, but uh, you visit evolution. It's evolution with three L's, by the way, the L's are for lifelong learning. Ah, uh, so visit, yeah, there you I go. Like that. So okay. evolution.com uh, to access our, 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 uh, our publication. Again, to download the research we were referencing today, uh, moderncampus.com slash microcredential, singular microcredential. Um, I think that's the, and then you can find me on LinkedIn as well. I'm the only person with my name that I know of. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. <laughs> well, Amrit, this has been uh, a privilege. I appreciate you taking time out of your, your busy life to, to chat with us. Um, and yeah, looking forward to, to staying in touch and continuing to learn from you. Absolutely, Zach. It's been an absolute pleasure. 
Hey all Zach here from Enrollify. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Enrollify podcast. If you like this episode, do us a huge favor and hit that follow and subscribe button below. Furthermore, if you've got just two minutes to spare, we would greatly appreciate you leaving a rating and a review of this show on Apple Podcasts. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. But Enrollify is far more than just a podcast network. Enrollify is where higher ed comes to learn new marketing skills, discover new products and services, and find their next job. We're a growing learning community of 4,000 members, and we'd love to welcome you into the fold. You can access our free blog articles, newsletters, e-courses, and more, or purchase our master course on how to market a university with Terry Flannery at enrollify.org. We look forward to meeting you soon and welcoming you into the community. Again, you can subscribe for free at enrollify.org.